All right, so by way of review and just to keep in mind the context of the letter that we're looking at, we're going to look at the, the outline real quick of 1 Corinthians. It's broken up into two main parts. The first part is where problems have been reported to Paul. Um, and, and there have been a certain number of things that have come to his attention through Chloe's household and, and potentially others where he is, is needing to address those through this letter. And so he is writing about those. And, and uh, in chapters 1 through 4, he's dealing with division that he finds out that they are involved with. And, and talks about the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. And, and they have, uh, the, the Corinthians have put their faith in the wrong, in the wrong source. They're, they're, they're putting their faith in men and lifting men over uh, God and the gospel. Uh, chapter 2. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, ch- uh, chapters 1 through 4 deal with that. Uh, in chapter 5, he deals with the issue of fornication in, in the church, but not just that, but the fact that the church is tolerating that sin among them and, and what they need to do to deal with that and that they need to remove that from uh, him and his influence from the church. Uh, in chapter 6, Christians taking one another to court and a proper, bu- proper view of... Uh, Sexual immorality, which we'll talk about. And then in the second half, uh, Paul responds to various questions that he has asked or, or, or statements that have been made to him in various correspondences. In chapter 7, uh, he deals with the concept of marriage and, and the sexual relationship and, and just gives some, some basic instruction and guidance there. Uh, chapters 8 through 10 looks at the idea of... Uh, Responds to to their question around eating meat sacrificed to idols and, and what that um, you know what what they need to do do with that. Chapter eleven he deals with the covering and then uh, misuse of the Lord's Supper and, and what they're doing when they come together. Chapters twelve through fourteen he deals with spiritual gifts and and we know they they were very preoccupied with spiritual gifts and had some pride and were puffed up. For, puffed up over that. And so he, he deals with that there. Uh, in chapter, fif- uh, chapter 15, he addresses some false beliefs uh, from the resurrection and, and answers uh, some questions there. And then in chapter 16, he closes out the letter and talking about the collection um, uh, that he is, he is taking up. Uh, so that's a real brief review. We'll uh, move ahead. Wanted to briefly get into the end of chapter 6. And I wrote at the top of my notes here a five-minute overview of the last half of chapter 6. I doubt we're going to keep that to five minutes. But I want, I, I want to just make a brief overview and make sure we don't, we don't miss anything that, that happens here at the end of chapter 6. Um, because the, it, it's an important, important subject. And what problem is being addressed at the end of chapter 6, as we begin to dive into the text here, what problem is being addressed? Immorality. Sexual immorality, fornication, um, and, and what, what the proper use of the body is. There seems to be some, some confusion or misuse of the body there within in, uh, Corinth. Why do you think this is such an issue? This is, this is the second time we've come across, or at least the second time we've come across this, that Paul is, Paul is, Paul is addressing this. Yeah. 
Yeah, it had a reputation. The city had a reputation for that. There was some uh, Greek philosophy that was creeping in with uh, especially the Gnostics that said <clears throat> what you did in your mind and your body were different things. That you could, whatever you did in your body did not affect uh, your soul. And so that may have been one thing that was creeping in, too, that they felt that uh, this was not, in their minds, a big deal. Right. And, and, and those, those two answers are exactly along the lines of what I was thinking. The, the city itself was involved with pagan worship, and, this, and, and that was a, it, they were known for uh, having this sexual immorality among them as part of their culture. But at the same time, this philosophy was coming in where they, it, it, we can do our, whatever we want with our bodies. That doesn't matter because it's the, it's the spirit that is, uh, is what is important. And so the, these two ideas make this an important issue. And this isn't the last time he's going to mention this here in, in this chapter. But it, it's important uh, enough that he is he's addressing it here. And in the last part of chapter 6, what I wanted to, to do was just point out that there, there's about... Eight or nine, depending on how many you, you count it, different arguments that are, or points that Paul makes regarding sexual immorality and why they need to stay away from it. And he, he makes these arguments as he goes through. And I just want to briefly touch on the things he says here. Um, and, and, and so the first one that I wanted to, to address was that he said in verses 9 through 10, sexual immorality is unrighteousness. Uh, it... And those who participate in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's unrighteousness equal to a, a long list of sins he has there, equal to idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and, the, uh, and thieves and greedy and drunkenness, revilers and, and swindlers, equal to the unrighteousness of taking one another to court and defrauding them as well. This is all the same context that he is, he is, he is speaking here. And he's saying... Number one, don't practice sexual immorality because it's unrighteous and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and so, so that, that's the first point we see here. Second, he says in verse 11, you have been washed, sanctified, and justified of these practices. You, you were one of these. You were doing these. But you have been sanctified and, and forgiven of these. Don't return to them. As Christians, you are to live differently now. And so that's the second argument I, uh, I see here. In verse 12, there's a couple different arguments. He says, it's not helpful, right? The, not all things are helpful for, for, for the body. And participating in sexual immorality is not a helpful activity to the body. Uh, at the same time, in, in, in verse 12, he says, sexual immorality is a lack of control. Uh, I'm not dominated by anything, he says, um, I will not be dominated by anything showing self-control in how to use the body. And I believe that's an example for us to follow there. Not giving in to your passion, but controlling those, those, uh, those passions and urges. Verses 13 through 14, the body is to be used for uh, the Lord, not for fornication. Not for sexual immorality. That's not what the body is for. It is for the Lord. In verses 15 through 17, we see that the Christian's body is a member of Christ only, not a member of the prostitutes or the harlots or, or anything else having to do with sexual immorality. But as a Christian, you're, you're, you're a member of Christ. Your body is a member of Christ, and it, your body is to be used according to the will and the directions of Christ as its head. And so that is... Uh, a, 
a point there. Verse uh, verse 18, fornication is sin against the body. So we see that the sexual immorality, it's unrighteous, it's sin. And it's sin against your own body. Uh, Verse 19, he, he describes it as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, not only that, but it has been bought with a price. It's no, it's no longer yours. Your body is not your own. And that's a theme we see throughout here is your body is not your own. You belong to Christ. And the things you do with your body need to be according to the will of Christ. Um, so that, that's a quick, quick, very quick recap of the points that, that are made. But he makes two conclusions in here as well. Uh, about, okay, so here's my arguments and here's, here's the conclusion. Here's the application. In verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Don't hang around the temples where this is happening. Don't toy with it. Don't get close to the line. Don't let yourself be tempted. This should no longer be a part of your life. Flee from it. And I think there's a, there's a parallel there to, to uh, Joseph and how he reacted to Potiphar's wife. And in that Old Testament story we're familiar with, that, that is a, an example of fleeing from uh, when, when confronted with, with uh, sexual immorality. And then the second in verse 20 is to glorify God in your body. And we want to be good stewards of our body. Use it for the purpose it was created, bringing glory to God. In a few chapters in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to say, uh, talk to them about the, uh, the meat sacrifice to idols and, and talk, talking to them about, about that concept. And he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this is a theme he's going to come back to, that you are to use your body, you are to use everything that you do to glorify God. That, that is your purpose. 1 Peter 4 also, said, uh, Peter wrote, whatever you speak, whatever you do, do it in a way that God is glorified in all things. So this is a common theme we see throughout the scriptures and something we need to keep in mind that we want to glorify God. And, and that is not the case, I believe Paul is saying here, when one is participating in fornication or sexual immorality of any kind. And so he's making that distinction. There's some applications for us here. Obviously, aside from the first one, that fornication is sin and is going to keep us from entering heaven, that, that seems, that's very clear from, from, the, from the scriptures here that we read. Um, we're to flee from sexual immorality, and we're to use our bodies to glorify God. So, so, so some applications for us from this. But how can we know what is glorifying to God? That's a question that kind of came to my mind when it comes to, okay, if I'm, if I'm to use my body to glorify God, what, how, how can I know what is going to be glorifying to God? How, do, how can I know that's uh, what I'm going to do is, is going to follow that? And there's a couple principles in here that I thought kind of stood out and might be helpful in, in determining that. And, we, and we've already kind of mentioned it, so we'll run through it briefly, but in... Verse 12, he says, well, not all things are helpful or profitable, right? So in one sense, how can we know what is glorifying to God in our body? Well, is it helpful? Is it profitable use of of our body? Is it adding value or is it building up? Or on the flip side, is it depraving? Is it unhelpful? Is it, uh, you know, hindering yourself or others? 
Is it discouraging? Is it, is it bringing a, uh, you know, a, a bad reputation to myself or to the Lord? And so some things to, to kind of to ask when it comes around, is, is it helpful or is it harmful? Second, in uh, verse 12, the end of verse 12, he says, are we disciplined or are we dominated? And the point, the, the thing he says is I'm not dominated by anything, but I think there's a point to be made there that, you know, we can be dominated by our temptations and by our sin. That, that, that's a real thing that can happen. We can, our lives can be completely taken over by sin, and especially of the, uh, of the sexual kind here. But, you know, maybe it's a de- desire for alcohol. Maybe it's a desire for a, a, a desperate need to be, uh, to, to be liked and popular or successful or of high status, right? May, all of those things can be a temptation that can dominate the way we use our body and the way we, we, we live our lives. Uh, Galatians 5, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and Paul, Paul has talked about in other places, and we, uh, we know it is important for us to, 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 uh, to have— but if we're going to use our body to glorify God, it's got to be done intentionally with self-control. And it can't be dominated by uh, our passion and, and, uh, and, and things like that. So that, that's the second piece. And then the third, the third question that, that came to mind, and he mentioned this several times, but are we, are we ruled by God or are we ruled by sin? And is the way we're using our body in accordance with how we're being ruled? Uh, and, you know, mo- there's multiple references in here. The body is for the Lord, verse 13 and 14. It's not for sexual immorality. That means it's to be ruled by the interests of the Lord. And the things we do need to be in accordance with, with his will. Our bodies are not our own. We can't do whatever we want with them. But it needs to be for the Lord and according to his will. Um, verse 15 through 17, our bodies are members of Christ, we mentioned. Uh, joined to the Lord, our bodies are to be ruled by the will of the Lord in one spirit, it says. And again, our bodies are not our own. We are to be ruled by God, not ruled by sin. And uh, we are part of the body of Christ. We want to submit to the head of that body. Um, very different picture we see here if we start to answer these questions on what what how we use our body and what is glorifying to God versus things that we see in the world, right? And some of the concepts, well, you know, it's my body, I'll do what I want with it, right? Or body doesn't really matter because it's spirit and, and, and my mind and things like that. It, very different concept here. Paul is telling the Corinthians the exact opposite. It does matter what you do with your body. It does matter uh, how you use your body. It belongs to God. So use it in a way to glorify God and use it in a way that is helpful and disciplined and ruled by God. And I think this principle can be applied to more things than just fornication. Uh, you know, th- this is the example that Paul is using here, but I think we can answer these questions about any th- anything we want to do with our body, right? And we could we could go down, well what about things that we are putting in our body, whether it's whether it's uh, drugs or smoking or or other other things that we are putting in our body that's harmful to it. Does that glorify God? by, by uh, doing those things? What about the way we dress and how we present our body to others? That can be a way that we glorify a God in, in our body. Um, 
What about in what we eat and what we drink? What he talks about in, in chapter 10, right? Gluttony is a sin we don't like to talk about a lot, but it is there. And, and drink, drinking and, and all of those things, are we, do we look at what we eat and drink through the lens of, is this glorifying to God? If, if someone saw me doing this, would this be glorifying to God? Or even if somebody doesn't see me doing this, is my behavior glorifying to God here. So I think there's some principles here that, that we, can, we can follow to, to understand and, and use our bodies to glorify God better. Was there? Oh, Bill. Yeah, kind of along those lines, Matt, I think that's part of what he's saying in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 16. So the way that I read verse 16 is they saw some sex as inconsequential. So it's not helpful or harmful. It's just something I want to do and uh, it's it's neutral and i think what he's trying to say in uh, verse 16 is there's no sex that's that's um that's inconsequential you you're going to join he appeals back to genesis chapter 2 regardless uh, of who your partner is whether it's a a woman a husband a wife or a prostitute you are you are joining your, your bodies with them in the way that, that God designed in Genesis chapter 2. You can't take that lightly. It's kind of like you're saying. You can't take the things that you do with your body you know, lightly. And even on the, the reverse side, even in, in marriage, we can't take uh, the sexual activity lightly either as something that's a duty or something that's just like anything else. No, it's, it's a bond that... Go takes us back to uh, to Genesis chapter two as well. So I think it's it's a specific application of what you're trying to you're talking about here. Nothing nothing you do with your body is neutral. So right. No, that, thank you. Good point. And it, it is it, it matters. And I think sometimes in the world it, it doesn't matter to the world. Right. Yeah, Bruce. And and building on that too, we glorify God also. Uh, according to the two great commandments, we have an obligation to glorify God, and we do that by how we treat our our neighbor. Here in verse 12, he's going to continue this on through, as you said, with the eating of meats. Uh, but he says, I'm free to do a lot of things, and we are. We're free to do whatever we want. God has enabled that through the free will that he put into us. But all things are not uh, good to, do, good to uh, use your freedom. And particularly if we are doing something that is offensive to our brother, uh, we're not building that brother up or brethren. And so glorifying God takes into the whole account of this sexual immorality because it was rather open. Uh, People could know uh, what you were doing and where you were were going, and it becomes uh, a pitfall to them as well. So we glorify God not only in these these ways, but also uh, by exercising this restraint of the freedoms that we use that even though we're free to do that, it may cause someone to stumble. Even though we're free to do that, it may bring something into the church that shouldn't be there, and therefore we do not glorify God. Thank you. Very, very good. Any, anything else on Chapter 6, Sarah, over here on... I think in contrast today, we need to be really upfront with this and realize that a lot of the sexual sin today is not people doing things in the streets. It's people looking at porn in their homes and the digital age that we're in. 
And so I think, you know, it could be easy for us to read this and think, well, that's maybe not going on. But, you know, we've got this, you know, for those of us raising kids, like we've got this responsibility to realize that a lot of the sexual sin that's happening is through social media. It's through access that we have online. It looks a lot different than it did in Corinth. Not that that's not going on, but that's not really like we're not necessarily with our kids. You know, we're not battling with people, you know, sexual sin in the streets and those kind of things in front of us. It's what's going on on our phones and the access that we have. And so I think, you know, what you said about are we disciplined or or dominated, you know, that's, that's a really good thing for us to be talking to, you know, for everybody, but especially, you know, talking to our kids and and teens about um, just, you know, I thought about social media in general with are we disciplined or dominated, but I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's not necessarily not necessarily always in the open, right? It, 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 it can it's hidden as well. And Chris, uh, I, I, we're, we've been having some really good uh, comments, and and I, I appreciate those. Uh, I just had a question about verse twenty. Um, when I read from the New King James Version, it seems like there's more there are more words to it than in the New American Standard. Um, it, it ends with, therefore, glorify God in your body in the New American Center. I was just curious if you knew why. I don't, I don't think it's of much consequence. Like, we, we were covered in that in different areas. but just... Yeah, I, I noticed that while reading through. I didn't dig into why and where that would have dropped off and what the translation was. So, I, unfortunately, I don't think I have a good answer, but I, I, did, I did notice that while I was reading through. All right. Let's... Go ahead and didn't quite make five minutes, but um, didn't do too bad. All right, let's go ahead and move into chapter seven. I th- thank you for the comments. I, I do. I enjoy the, the discussion. Um, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about before we just dive into the text on, on chapter seven. And one, one is a point I just wanted to make that you know we, we've we've made already through our review and as we're looking through the outline. But in chapter seven, we get to this transition point in the letter where Paul Paul has been talking about things that has been reported to him by Chloe's household. And now we're going to switch gears to now concerning the matters about which he wrote here in 7 verse 1. And there's several different, uh, d- different er- areas throughout where this, this phrase now concerning or now uh, similar phrases to that pop up through the rest of this book and gives us kind of a roadmap of when Paul is going to switch topics. And now, now we're going to talk about this. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols. And, and he's going to go through. And so I just want to call that out here, that this, is, that this is changing in the way kind of what we've been looking at. It's been what Paul has observed and, and heard. And now we're going to, uh, to, to see these now concerning phrases um, uh, come up. I think that was all I had to say about that. Brief outline of chapter 7. Uh, if we had to sum up what chapter 7 is about, what, what is it about? Brief, brief summary. Hmm? Marriage, right? It, 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 it's about marriage. And it's about different aspects of marriage, and he goes through and he talks to, uh, not, he, don't, he not only covers different aspects of marriage, but he talks to different groups of people about marriage and about a view on marriage and, and how they should look at it. 
And in this book, we see, well, what, what is marriage's purpose? What, what are the responsibilities and obligations we have in marriage? Uh, what is good in marriage? What isn't good in marriage? We're going to see that marriage is lawful and marriage is good. There's a responsibility and a duty in marriage that we have. Um, and that, that marriage is permanent. And these points are things that we see throughout this chapter and uh, as Paul goes through and addresses these different areas. It's broken up into two kind of main, main sections. The verses 1 through 24, he talks uh, kind of, he directs his, his, uh, his writing to those who are married. And so the first half is directed to those who are married and... and uh, in that, he, he gives some general teaching about, uh, about marriage and what, what his purpose is. He uh, talks about divorce in 10 through 16. And then there's some kind of basic guiding principles. I, I, I look at that in verses 17 through 24 on that kind of guide his view on marriage and, and, and what he is recommending to, um, to, to the people there in Corinth. And then the second half in verses 25 through 40 we have construction, uh, instructions concerning those who are single, um, specifically to the betrothed virgins, those who, who are unmarried, uh, have never been married, verses 25 through 38, um, and, and Paul's advice to them, and then the last two verses, 39 through 40, where he talks to the widows and gives some advice there. So that, that is the outline we're looking at here in chapter 7. Um, I do want to, two other points before we dive into the text that, that I think stood out to me while I was um, reading. And the first one is this idea of in view of the present distress. This is a comment made in verse 26 of chapter 7. And as I've read through this, I, I keep going back to this, this verse, and it keeps kind of coming up in my studies I'm going through, because I think it provides some important context to some of the things that Paul says here in this chapter, and, and some of the guidance he gives, some of the, the uh, advice he gives. Um, he gives some general truths about marriage, what it is, the benefits and responsibilities, but he also makes some statements in here and that, that can sometimes be, be a little confusing to read and can sometimes not, not make sense if, if we're just reading it at face value. You know, for example, uh, in the context of verse 26, he, he's, he says, and in paraphrasing, it, it's better not to get married. You know, and, and he's making that point to, to those who, who are unmarried, or he's about to make that point to, the, to those who are unmarried. But that doesn't exactly harmonize with other things that he wrote himself, where, you know, marriage is a good thing, and, and it's, it's, it's honorable, and it is, um, you know, comparing it to, to Christ and the church, right? I mean, he, he himself wrote that, and it doesn't necessarily harmonize with other things in the Bible about marriage, just saying, do not get married, right? But when we look at it in view of a present distress, there is a temporary present distress going on, and I recommend you don't get married right now. There's a little more context there around what, what he is saying and makes a little more sense to us when we read that. Um, we don't know what the present distress is. There's several theories, and we could take up a lot of time going through some of them. Um, but there's some things that I think we can, we can conclude about it. Uh, number one, it, it, it was present. It was something they were currently going through and they, they were currently dealing with. Um, it was troubling enough that I think some of their questions and that correspondence to Paul would have been about that present distress. And maybe they're asking questions in light of that, um, you know, specifically here around this uh, the sexual relationship and, 
in marriage, um, you know, I, I could easily see the a question being, well, is it good for us to stay with our spouse because of all the things we're going through right now, because of this present distress? Is it, uh, is it good for, you know, should we even get married? Or is it better to just abstain from the sexual relationship right now? Do we need to just kind of back off from that? You know, seeing, seeing Paul's responses, we can kind of see maybe there are some, some questions around that, potentially. Um, but it was troubling enough that, there, that, 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 that Paul needed to mention it. And likely, I think what it likely could be is, is Roman persecution at that time. Um, we know, uh, Paul, Paul, there's a couple references throughout the letter uh, about persecution. But we also know historically... With the context, you've got Nero, you've got Claudius, the Roman emperors who around that time were uh, arresting and, and uh, putting to death those who were confessing Christ and confessing belief in one Jehovah God. And there, there was all, all of these things going on uh, around there. And you can imagine, imagine how distressing a situation like that could be and could affect people's faith, could affect their thoughts on what they need to be doing and how they should be living their lives. Um, You'd, you'd be second-guessing all sorts of behaviors, especially if you're a new convert who just walked into this world and made a choice, and now there's persecution based on this choice you just made. And maybe even more than that, especially if you've made that choice, but your spouse hasn't. Maybe there's some conflict there, and, uh, and, and you, you want to understand how to, how to navigate that. Or maybe you're not yet married, but... You know, there's pressure to do that. You're considering that. Is this the right time to do that based on what is going on? And so there, there's some things there that, that we could uh, see having um, application. And, you know, I, I, I kind of I, I made, a, made a note, and it, it kind of struck me as I was thinking through this idea of this present distress. Um, you know, I'd point to, to what we went through in the last couple of years is much less severe from, you know, we weren't being put to death, but, you know, you've got uh, the, the COVID, COVID issue that, that we all dealt with, and that put a strain on many Christians and had, had us asking questions that we had never asked before and had never really thought about, well, because of what is going on, do, do I go to worship? Because of what is going on, do I, what is my responsibility to my family and to other people? And what is my responsibility to the government now? And how do I interact here, right? All these different questions that because of the, the distress that we were in, we, we had to start thinking about. And, 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 you know, I think that was relatively minor in, in comparison to, to widespread persecution and, and death. But it, it kind of rocked us a little bit, right? And, and I think that we can see how a present distress, whatever it might be, could affect the faith of a, of a church could affect the faith of, of some Christians and, and, and just start questioning things and, and working through that. And so I, I just thought that was, a, you know, just kind of looking through here. I can put myself in kind of in their shoes a little bit and in and, and the things that they might be thinking and how Paul is giving them guidance. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to do before diving in the text really quick, and we'll, we'll do this fast, but I wanted to look at some real basic biblical principles around marriage and just, just look at what the Bible says about it. And we're not going to turn to all of these passages. I'm just going to reference these really quick. But I think it's important to, to do this because chapter 7 is commonly misapplied. And commonly uh, people will say, well, well chapter 7 is, you know, there's things in here that, 
that contradict other, uh, you know, other, other teachings about, about marriage in the Bible. And there are things that might be confusing. And so I think it'd be good to just do a quick basic overview of some of the principles we see in the Bible around marriage and, 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 and start from there. And so we see Genesis 2, Bill, Bill mentioned this a minute ago, but Genesis 2, origi- marriage originated from God at creation. And, uh, in, you know, at, at that time, uh, God observed it's not good that man should be alone. And he created a helpmeet. He uh, provided instructions on how the relationship should be. And Jesus referenced that when he taught about marriage in, in Matthew. Um, he points back to the beginning for that institution of marriage. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable, and the marriage bed is undefiled. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, uh, the one who forbids marriage is falling away from faith. And the, this one I thought was kind of interesting as I was going through looking at passages that, that, that were about marriage. But it, Timothy was warned that there would be those falling away from the faith. And an indicator was that they were forbidding marriage. They are saying, don't get married. And I thought that was kind of interesting in some of the context of what, what we're going to read in chapter 7. Um, Ephesians 5, marriage is recommended and looked on favorably by Paul, um, uh, by Paul himself when he compared the relationship of Christ and the church to that of the husband and wife. And so we see that comparison. Obviously, it was, it was looked on, on favorably there, and, and it is a, a direct comparison there. And marriage is permanent with the exception being adultery. And we see that in uh, Matthew 19 and other references as well. But um, I wanted to kind of just briefly put that up there as a foundation. And, and what I want to, the reason I want to do this, because I think it's important that we see Paul doesn't contradict or change these basic principles of marriage in chapter 7. That it, it, he doesn't change anything that we, we've just said or, or anything else that we see. There are some statements he makes in light of the present distress that, uh, that, that was specific guidance to the Corinthians at the time. And, and I think there's uh, some specific application there. And there are also statements that Paul clearly identifies as personal judgment throughout the chapter that we'll see. But in most of these cases, he, he's not saying, you know, what I'm saying here is right and this is wrong. He's, he's more making a good versus better recommendation in some, of, in some of his judgment that he's saying here. And he's not changing or uh, contradicting the existing principles of marriage. Before we dive into the text, anything on kind of the, the introduction there for chapter 7 before we move on? All right. In our first section of chapter 7 here, Paul addresses those Christians who are currently married. And he provides some general instruction around marriage in these first nine verses. And he begins with a response to what they have written. And he says, yes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. However, in verse 2, it is good to marry, to take a wife or a husband, to help avoid the temptation of sexual immorality. So, so I think, that, you know, this is a direct lead-in from chapter 6, where he's been talking about sexual immorality. He then brings up the idea that, that they have talked about, okay, yes, it is good. You're not supposed to talk, you're not supposed to, 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 to touch a woman, but it is good in marriage. If you're going to do that, it is good. Uh, take, take a wife, take a husband, and, and it is good within that relationship. Um, pretty straightforward, makes make sense. 
Um, sexual relationship outside of the marriage is wrong, should be avoided. Uh, it's good not to touch a woman. Uh, however, sexual relationship inside of the marriage is good, and it helps to prevent fornication uh, there. And, and, and that he goes on into verses 3 through 6 to, to continue to, to talk about the, the sexual relationship and the responsibilities and the proper attitudes of the Christian. Uh, New American Standard in verses 3 through 6 says that the husband has, uh, must fulfill his duty, likewise the wife to her husband. In other uh, translations, they must uh, render uh, affection due the, the other spouse. But there is a responsibility within the marriage relationship we see to give the affection that is due to one another. And one is not to deprive the spouse of this relationship. One is not to, you know, that, and, and I think that's the core instruction here we see in, in verses three through six here. You're not to deprive one another. Um, it's not to be abused. It's not to be used as a bargaining chip. It's not to, uh, you know, to, to reward or punishment, uh, to, to punish, but it's not to be withheld or deprived for any reason Except what? There's one, there's one concession Paul makes here. Give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to prayer. Yes. Uh, give yourself to prayer. He says, you are not to deprive your spouse of this relationship, uh, of, the, uh, of, of what they need here. But uh, for, by agreement, for a limited time, you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together. And that's the, those are kind of the four things we see there. You know, there may be situations where you need to take time to focus on the issue at hand. And, and, and maybe it's a spiritual issue or whatever it is. And you need to devote yourself to prayer and, and, and devote yourself to the Lord. Number one, you can't just make that decision by yourself. There has to be an agreement that, that you're working together and you're going to, to, um, to, to take that time. There must be a time to come back together. You know, I don't think this is, this is a time where Paul is saying, you know, hey, just... Just take all the time you need and, and go and, and, and don't come back, right? No, he, there's a time to come back together. And why can this not be a long-term situation? It'll ruin the marriage, yeah. It's about you know, preserving your soul, right? So temptation will occur. And I, I think also you can't belittle the idea that maybe some of this idea of depriving one another, you know, for, you know, not having that part of the relationship is because of the present distress and do you want to bring children into this world during this time? And, uh, and Paul says, you need to not think about those consequences and instead think about the consequence to your soul right now. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I was going to bring up that I, I, do, I do think there is a tie-in to the present distress with this concession that he is giving them. Um, and and it, is, it, is a, it is a prevention to uh, the sexual t- temptation and and. The, the fact that Satan may tempt. So we see this instruction here, uh, the, the, the concession made by Paul, that it, it be done for a time, devoted to prayer, come back together. Um, and then verse 7 through 9, those who are unmarried, um, he describes as having, uh, those who are unmarried with the ability to have self-control, they have a gift from God. And, and he makes that statement, um, to the ability to refrain from fornication. And, and I think that, that in, it, in itself kind of informs a lot of what we're going to see Paul say throughout the rest of the chapter, that he, it, it is... Um, you know, if Paul had his way, everyone would be like him. They'd be able to refrain from sexual immorality. They would be 100% all in on the Lord, teaching, going on journeys, and doing every, their entire life completely focused on serving the Lord. But 
the, not everybody has that gift. Not everybody has that, that, that ability and freedom and, and ability to do that. And so in that case, um, it's better to, to be married. Yes, Chris. So back on the, uh, the separation for prayer, it is interesting that the New King James Version and even the Young's Literal Translation includes fasting there. Um, that could also answer the question about how long uh, do you separate from your, your spouse? How long can you go without food? That that's right. uh, the purpose is very much spiritual separation. So we should be cautious as married people today as to our reasoning for uh, sleeping apart from each other. Um, just yep. I, absolutely, thank, thank you, and I'm glad you brought that up. That uh, that does give some kind of guidelines on on how long can you can you do this, right? Um, Paul switches gears. We've got about a few minutes left. Paul switches gears. We're going to get to uh, 10 through 16 here in regards to, to divorce. And that's going to be where we're going to be able to stop. Um, Paul switches gears here away from the sexual relationship in marriage to the permanence of marriage. And as he discusses this idea of divorce. And first he says in verses 8 and 9, uh, not I, but the Lord. In verses 8 and 9, Paul was essentially giving his, his opinion, his, his guidance, and his judgment there by saying, I wish all could be like me. But in contrast, he, he's making a kind of a contrasting statement, but not I, but the Lord says this. And he gives the charge that the wife should not separate or leave her husband. The, wife, the husband is not to divorce his wife in verses 10 and 11 here. And that is a commandment from the Lord. That is, that is Paul is repeating to the Corinthians here in verse 10, things that Jesus has already taught and biblical principles that are already been set up. He's just, he's, he's continuing that charge to the Corinthians here. Do not separate, do not leave, do not divorce. And, uh, exactly what, what Jesus says in 19, Matthew nineteen six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, I, now I did skip some words there in verse 11. Uh, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And I said it that way because the command here is to not leave or separate or divorce. But if it does happen, then she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So we see here there, there is a command and then a, not a concession or additional command, but a, if it does happen, in the case that it does, this is how you deal with it. Kind, kind of like what we saw in chapter five, where if there is sin in the church, this is how you deal with it. There shouldn't be sin in the church, but if there is, this is how you deal with it. Also, you know, another example that, that uh, I, I was thinking about, it's kind of like saying, well, thou shalt not murder. But if you do, there's going to be a consequence, right? It's still not, it's still not permission to murder. It's saying if you do, but the command is there that, that, that you should not separate or divorce. But if, if that is the case, then you're to remain unmarried or be reconciled. I believe, was that the second bell? Is that time? Okay. All right. We'll, we'll stop there and I'll turn it over to Phil next week. Thank you for all the, all the discussion.